This week's episode is also sponsored by NatureBox. Go to naturebox.com slash weeds for 50% off your first order. The following podcast contains explicit language. Is this about how everyone hates Trump? No, it's it's the opposite. Uh, it's about how much Republicans don't hate Trump. But I love him. Everyone loves Trump. Yeah, one percent Curveball. Hello, welcome to another episode of The Weeds, Vox's policy podcast on the Panoply Network. Matthew Iglesias uh, joined in the studio by my colleagues Ezra Klein and Sarah Cliff. Uh, we got it's a wonderful April morning we're enjoying here in D.C. Yes, the, February. The Chinese hoaxers have <laughs> <laughs> they've outdone themselves this morning. It's uh, it's it's nice, and we got a uh, we got a lot of good stuff to talk about. We've got a, a, a thrilling. It's a white paper, but it's about the Affordable Care Act. So yeah. it's really. It, done, it, it done. Brings, and it's about a Trump executive order. Yes. It brings it brings everything together. It's about math and rounding. It's, it's wonderful. A, I don't think we need to be this uh, concealing of it. It's about age rating. <laughs> Woo! It's yeah, big. It's I big. can hear you. Um, we're going to talk about some of the cabinet fights ongoing in the news. Uh, but but first, we wanted to, to kind of step back. And uh, uh, Sarah and I have, have both been writing about sort of progressive counter-mobilization in the Trump era. And why don't you— uh, yeah, so there has been, to an extent, I was not expecting a really big counter mobilization that, in a lot of ways, has reminded me of 2009, beginning of Tea Party, where there's a lot of focus on going to town halls right now. Um, there's this list of about 100 town halls that this new um, group, Town Hall Project 2018, is circulating, saying, like, you should show up, you should go. And people are really going. Um, You know, there were some town halls this past weekend that had over a thousand people showing up, protesting, rallying. And so I think there's two kind of interesting, surprising things here to talk through. One is just that it's it's happening, that there's this whole I think the Washington Post was the first one to make the joke or say, like, protest has become the new brunch. Like, there's always a protest. There's always on the weekend has been these really wide scale Mobilizations, and particularly with the protests around the travel ban, they felt very organic, like not especially organized. The Women's March was something that was announced weeks in advance that people got ready for. The protests at airports were really, um, really quite surprising and like not something that anyone could have prepared for, given that we didn't know the executive order was coming. So you're seeing a lot of this, and it seems like it's only picking up. I think you're going to see in the last week of February, this will kind of hit an even higher note, that is when legislators will be on recess. You'll have a lot of town hall meetings and you'll have these liberal groups circulating the lists of town hall meetings. That's one thing that has surprised me because it really, it seems very similar to how the Tea Party started in 2009, how they developed this distinct ideology. And then there's a you know side of it that Matt's been writing about that it seems like this is actually working, that I think it is very easy to write these off as a lot of angry people who are showing up and then they go home and then they watch TV or do something else. But it seems like these are the type of things uh, that the Trump administration is watching and responding to. And you, Matt, you had a really good list of some of the things they've scaled back. Maybe I'll turn it over to you about like what this mobilization we're seeing, like what it is meaning and shaping. Yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's gotten a little swamped because judges have now stayed the, the entire immigration executive order. But what was noticeable is that between – the Friday evening when the protesters started showing up the airports and when the stay came down, uh, Trump already uh, uh, said that they were going to 
exempt green card holders. That's people with with permanent residency permits. They said they were going to exempt dual nationals, uh, first of a select handful of countries, then of basically all countries. And they started saying that the military was going to be allowed to make a list of special exemptions for people who'd worked with the U.S. Army in Iraq and Syria. Um, So those were, you know, very significant kinds of exemptions. Oh, they also let in uh, some handful of of refugees who had uh, were scheduled for medical treatment. Um, So basically it was like they started rolling back all of the most sort of heavily criticized parts of this. You were still left with an order that has real significance, particularly for refugees uh, heading forward, um, but that they they really walked a lot of it back. And I think you also saw that an executive order had been circulating that was going to revoke deportation protections from dreamers. Uh, you know, somebody had written that up. It was something... Uh, Many Republicans. I mean, if Republicans, somebody leaked it to Vox, so it was leaked to Vox. <laughs> but but I mean, more than more than just the the leaks. I mean, it's worth saying the context, yeah. right? Like yep. there was a Dream Act. If Republicans in Congress had wanted to protect those people from deportation, they would have voted yes on the Dream Act. But instead, they voted no. Because they voted no, it didn't pass. Because it didn't pass, Obama came up with the the DACA program, Deferred Action for Childhood Rivals, which was met again with overwhelming criticism from Republicans uh, because, again – if they had wanted to protect these people from deportation, they would have voted for the law. Then there was a campaign. Um, The most anti-immigration Republican candidate won the nomination, won the election. He came into office. I think it would be – would have been very reasonable to assume that DACA would be revoked. It still might be revoked in the future, but it's – the order has – gotten lost in the mail or something. Um, You know, from what I hear, people on on Capitol Hill are not expecting it soon um, because there is, you know, fear that that would actually be a much more potent range of of protests. There's many, many more sort of tentacles into the community and and more people who would show up. And similarly, on health care, it sort of seemed, I think we said on this show that, you know, in mid, late November, it was like, well, Republicans all like said they wanted to repeal Affordable Care Act. They have the votes. They probably will. Um, and now they are looking very hesitant. Uh, the kind of cautionary notes that Ezra raised. Thank um, you for remembering that. Seem to be weighing on their You haven't won this battle yet, Klein. <laughs> heavily. Um, and while I won't say it's not going to happen, what I had thought was that they were going to just like brush that aside and not worry about it. And they clearly are worried about it. And they're worried because they're hearing from people and it's making them nervous. So I was up on the Hill last night and I was talking to a senator. Uh, He's actually a Democrat, but he's one of the Democrats who is extremely well-liked by Republicans on the Hill, works a lot with them, has a lot of um, relationships and does a lot of co-sponsoring legislation. And I was asking him just how things felt. And I, I said to him, you know, Does it feel to you like your Republican colleagues have a spring in their step right now? Are they excited by all the things they're going to get done? And he looked at me and said, no, they're terrified. Like everybody is terrified. And I was asking him about um, 2018 and just how he saw that that playing out. And he said that he is not happy Donald Trump won the election. But it is the case that it is a lot easier for Democrats running in 2018 than carrying Hillary Clinton on their backs. And that is a thing that a lot of these members of Congress are feeling. And so I want to draw out a point that is implicit in what Sarah and Matt were both saying. 
and relates now I'm going to plug my piece to a piece I wrote about how to how to stop autocracies in America this week, which is what the Tea Party did extremely effectively in 2009 was they focused on Congress. Famously, during the August recess, they went to a million town halls. They overwhelmed the town halls. They scared the hell out of Democratic legislators. But they also scared the hell out of Republican legislators. They destroyed the capacity of someone like Olympia Snow or Chuck Grassley or any of this number of folks who might have cooperated on the Affordable Care Act to lend any kind of bipartisan support to the bill. And that was very, very effective. Congress is a much more open institution of protest than the presidency. Members of Congress, they're particularly the House, are up more often. They have have fewer constituents. They're more afraid of the constituents they do have. So uh, Congress is often very vulnerable to protest. And that is really what you're seeing in, in the kind of mobilization Sarah spoke about. There is a, a quote that came out not long ago from Dave Bratt, who is the, the congressman who beat Eric Cantor in a primary. And he said to, to the Richmond Dispatch, was it, I think? You no, know, he said at an event with conservative groups, you can deliver oh, this okay. quote, but he was talking to some allies about the situation he's in. And he said, he was talking about the Affordable Care Act. He said, these women are up in my grill wherever I go, and it's not to offer positive feedback. <laughs> and it's really upsetting him, and it's upsetting a, a lot of these Republicans because that kind of mobilization, it, it, it does scare them. It scares them about their next election. And there is a real feeling that between what is happening in the Trump administration, which is to the from the perspective of Republicans in Congress, very chaotic. There's not a lot of forward guidance coming out. They don't have a good legislative affairs team. And so Republicans in Congress are finding themselves completely unable to plan, which is a really big and I think undernoticed dynamic happening right now. They're not effectively planning their own legislative calendar. The nominations, which we'll talk about later, are taking a lot longer than they usually do. So the scheduling on Capitol Hill is completely fucked up right now. But in addition to not being able to plan and not being confident in the Trump administration's ability to message his stuff and, and sequence it, they're also afraid of what they're seeing both in the polls and in their home districts, which is a highly mobilized liberal and even to some degree maybe independent base and an increasingly kind of demoralized and apathetic conservative base. Wait, I mean, I, and I think that the demobilization side of this is, is also important. I mean, I think something that every... The day after the election, when you win, people are always hoping the winners that like their team is going to keep up the momentum and it's going to like carry them forward into the new year. And what you often see is that that doesn't happen, right? That like you have a number of Democratic senators representing states that Donald Trump won quite overwhelmingly. And those senators are going to like go with Trump on a certain number of issues, but they're not. Like, at least as I understand it, Heidi Heitkamp and John Tester were not besieged by angry pro-Trump phone calls urging them to confirm Betsy DeVos, right? Like, the conservatives are complacent on the grassroots. People who really wanted Donald Trump to win the election are happy that Donald Trump has won the election and they may continue to be happy with him and, and vote for him and whatever. But people feel that they have like done their part when their side wins, whereas when their side loses, they become much more inclined to like get up and go do things. And it's a the suddenness of the switch, you can tell, has taken members of Congress aback, even though on another level, like it's very predictable. Right. Like you don't see the people who are out at the 2009 town halls, like campaigning against the ACA, like showing up on mass, like saying, like, yes, you have to get rid of the ACA. You don't see as much, you know, from the legislators I've spoken with, 
I think they do hear from constituents who are frustrated with parts of the ACA, the deductibles, the premiums, but it seems like way more tilted to the other side. I mean, I think this is like a pretty common dynamic. I know I've heard from um, abortion rights groups like Planned Parenthood and um, NARAL, they they really struggled to fundraise in the Obama era. Like it's hard to get people to donate to your pro-choice group when you have a pro-choice president, even though all this stuff was happening in the states where they had their best fundraising during the George uh, W. Bush era. And you see the same thing with ACLU now where, where you saw like just, I think, $18 million in donations when they typically get $3 million in a year. Um, one of the things I think about the moment we're in now, I, I think we're just at the beginning of something. And I think, like I was saying earlier, like it's going to get much bigger as we get into the heart of like legislating some big issues. One of the things I'm curious to see how this develops is whether you do end up with a Tea Party of the left, of people who, you know, when I think of the Tea Party process in 2009, they weren't as much about primarying people. They're mostly about, you know, making sure people didn't support the health care law. And they had achieved that. They made sure no Republicans voted for it. Uh, but then it really, you know, grew into like primarying, you know, conservative Democrats and really going at people who are all right to the right from the further right. And curious, like what you guys think about, like whether that could possibly develop from this on the left. Like I've seen some, you know, more liberal friends on Facebook talking about, you know, you not better not support cabinet member X or Y or like you should be primaried like from I'm curious, like, if that happens, if you see this, like, increasing the polarization we've seen on the right, like, that happens on the left as an offshoot of this. Well, so this is, I think, going to be a very difficult strategic choice for Democratic legislators because I I think there's something really important happening here. And and I've talked to some of them about this, and I think they are are not sure what they're going to do. Let's take the the Neil Gorsuch nomination for a minute as as an example. So let's say that you're a Democratic senator, um, not the most vulnerable, not a Joe Manchin, right, who's up in West Virginia, which is super Trump country, but just a, a Democratic senator, you know, and not from a completely safe state. One question that you have to face just as a, as a starting point is whether or not – let's say you've already decided you're, you're going to vote no on this guy, right? You would probably lose a primary if you voted yes. You're going to vote no on Neil Gorsuch, not because he's a bad guy, not because he's a bad jurist, but just because you don't agree with him. You think Roe v. Wade was a correctly decided uh, case. So you're going to go vote no. Now the question is do you use a filibuster? So now the the sort of game theory becomes a little bit different. There's a view and Democrats do hold this view and I think they're probably right about it, that if they use a filibuster on Neil Gorsuch, who's considered a qualified nominee in an open seat that is replacing Antonin Scalia, the filibuster will be taken apart by Republicans. Republicans will finish the job Democrats began in 2013 and eliminate the filibuster not just from all confirmable nominees uh, up to the Supreme Court but now including the Supreme Court. You use a filibuster and it gets eliminated. What's the point of doing that? Well, one version is that there's no point of doing that. And so you should hold the filibuster and wait until maybe there's a time when you can use it and Republicans, moderate Republicans will be more open to it. Like say a pivot justice. Let's say Ruth Bader Ginsburg decides to retire and go windsurfing all the time. You use it then as a way of forcing a more compromised nominee and you might be able to get Lindsey Graham and a couple of people like that to to back you up on that. You're not going to get a, a – a, liberal nominee, but maybe you'll be able to get somebody who's not super far to the right. On the other hand, if you don't filibuster Gorsuch, the liberal base is going to lose their shit at you. They are going to be furious. They are going to feel correctly like you did not do everything you could to fight for them. And this mobilization that is currently allied with the Democratic Party will do what happened with the Tea Party and begin to see the Democratic Party as also another obstacle. And meanwhile, amidst that, you will have the Democratic politicians who really do have a social media base 
your Elizabeth Warrens, your Bernie Sanders, to some degree your Cory Bookers, and they will probably be because they're more liberal politicians on the filibuster side. So you're going to get creamed by um, by this liberal activist group, and so that I think is going to be the set of strategic decisions that decides what you're talking about. If Democrats decide to play this a little more traditionally and not filibuster everything to work with the Trump administration on places where they think there's a, a space to work together and to do this because they think it will protect vulnerable nominees in 2018, I think either they're going to see a demobilization of this progressive eruption or the progressive eruption is going to turn on them. On the other hand, there is a worry among Democrats that if they go sort of full out opposition, they are going to imperil folks like Heidi Heitkamp in 2018 and potentially weaken their strategic position uh, going forward and also just continue this breaking of the norms that they themselves are just very personally upset about. But I think that that sells a little bit short, like exactly how nutty the Tea Party insurgency became that like to, to me, like high Tea Partyism, right? It was when you got to the point where in Delaware, right, there was an open Senate seat in a clearly a blue state that it looked like Republicans were going to win with a well-qualified moderate nominee who had run and won statewide in Delaware previously. And instead of him, they nominated a crazy lady. Um, like that's that's a poor strategic choice, right? And Republicans, like the reason it took them until 2014 to capture the Senate was like that kind of like extreme primarying. And they also on policy, you know, not just things like Maybe they took a harsher line on Sonia Sotomayor than was tactically wise. But they would take proposals from Obama and in order to avoid cooperating, they would generate worse policy outcomes. You know, I mean like the, the Obama administration really did – come in and like really did want to do a grand bargain on the federal budget that would have substantially reduced the long-term trajectory of federal spending. Um, and Tea Party enthused Republicans swatted that opportunity aside and now their own president has like a position that is to the left of Obama's um, because they decided to throw away a chance at like a genuine compromise. I don't think we've seen a lot of indication from the Trump administration yet that they are interested in, in that kind of thing. But but to me, like, that's the big question. We, we discussed it a little bit hypothetically in the case of an infrastructure bill. Um, to me, like, that's the test, right? Like, if Trump regroups a little bit and is like, OK, I'm giving the Republicans their Supreme Court justice that they want. Uh, maybe another justice will retire someday and, and they'll get another one like they're excited. We're, you know, letting Congress work out its own tax and Obamacare issues. Who knows? Um, I want to get my poll numbers up. Let's like go back to that infrastructure bill idea that seemed to really work well for me on the campaign trail and that Chuck Schumer says he embraces. And so like if Trump makes that pivot to the center – like, do Democrats feel pressure to slap his hand away because it's incipient Nazism? Um, or do they respond in, like, normal politics fashion, which is, like, if the other guy wants to compromise, you come and you see if you can compromise. Um, and I don't think we've, like, had that put to the test, right? Like, scribbling out an executive order overnight without clearing it with any of the relevant cabinet <laughs> secretaries is not, like, a good faith effort to get anyone to cooperate with you. So, I mean, of course they're not cooperating. 
if you're anything like me, you know, sometimes you want a snack. And if what's around to snack on is junk food, you're going to eat junk food. And it's, it's not great. Um, so if you want to sort of live a healthier life, you can start snacking healthier with NatureBox. Uh, they make snacks that actually taste great and they're better for you. They're created with high quality ingredients that are free from artificial colors, flavors or sweeteners. So you can feel okay about snacking. Uh, I, I like some of their dried fruit stuff. They got great apples. They got great pears. Um, they also have some, you know, slightly more indulgent pretzely things in there that, that I also uh, I also go for. And they've recently made their service even better. You can order as much as you want, as often as you want, with no minimum purchase required, and you can cancel it at any time. Uh, so it's really simple. You go to naturebox.com, you check out their snack catalog. There's over 100 snacks to choose from. They're always adding new stuff. So you choose what you want. They deliver it right to your door. It's easy. With Naturebox, you'll never get bored. There's new stuff there each month. It's inspired by real customer feedback. And if for some reason something comes, you don't like it, they will replace it for free. That's a good opportunity to try out something new. Um, so right now you'll save even more because NatureBox is offering our fans 50% off your first order if you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. So you go to naturebox.com slash weeds. Uh, that way we get credit. You get 50% off your first order. Naturebox.com slash weeds. One of the other things I wonder about, like what the future of this thing looks like is how long it can persist. And I'm still of two minds on this. One is that, like, I so one side is that, you know, you make the argument that I wasn't really expecting this much of a mobilization so quickly on the part uh, of the left that to see, you know, both the the women's march be really large, the protests at airports, these town hall protests, they have taken me by surprise by how frequent they are, how much they're happening, how much legislators seem to care about them. And one of the things I wonder about is like whether whether that's sustainable, like how I think the victories that have happened make it more sustainable that like when I have talked to ACA advocates, like one of the things they're really buoyed by is that the Trump administration announced that it was going to stop advertising for Obamacare open enrollment and 24 hours later reversed that decision. It's a little unclear to me how much of that is um, because of the outcry, how much is um, because of the logistics of just taking down ads you already paid for. It turns out to be a little bit challenging. But both things will be true with the larger Affordable Care Act. Both the outcry and the logistics are going to be a challenge. So you have those pushing people along. But I guess I don't know how long the energy holds up. And like if I think back to 2009, if I'm remembering it correctly, you really had like a I guess you had a finite set of set of weeks over the summer where you would protest, followed by, like, I think a big protest in D.C. when the law was passing, maybe? I forget what. There was, like, one big march in Washington. I, I don't know how long it has to hold up to be effective and how long it will hold up. But, but that's where I think it's important to create a distinction between protesting as an act and, like, movements as a social organism. So – and this is where I think the idea of protest being the new brunch is a really – is a really important and interesting concept actually. So what you've been seeing recently and I, I think you hit on it well is that the bar for people to decide like what they are going to do with their Friday night or their Saturday morning is go out with a bunch of like-minded people and hold signs or do something, do some kind of act that is political has all of a sudden gotten really low. For the Obama administration to mobilize those very same people around those very same issues to actually go out and spend their time on them, it was incredibly, incredibly difficult. That basically they couldn't do it. And now it's almost nothing. These things are happening, you know, day by day, week by week with very spontaneous organizing. Now, I saw a David Frum piece about what makes for an effective protest. And David is a guy at The Atlantic. He used to work for the George W. Bush. He's a very smart guy, and he's been protested himself before. 
And he was giving this kind of advice, which is a sort of, I think, respectability politics vision of protesting about how, you know, it needs to be something that has moderate Republicans in it, that it needs to be something that would get Trump voters on your side. And I think that in terms of how this stuff works, even if that would be sort of conceptually, if you could do it more effective, I think it's wrong. And the way in which it's wrong is that this will live or die. It's persistence, uh, as you put it, Sarah, will will live or die based on whether or not it is a socially capable movement, whether or not people enjoy being part of it. I got Facebook invited to – and I, I don't go to these protests, but I got Facebook invited to a protest recently. It was a dance protest. I think it was outside the Supreme Court. And it had like some very funny lines in the invitation, you know, um, we don't need alternative facts because our hips don't lie and things like that. And I thought that's actually really smart that that looks like fun. That's something people might enjoy going to do. There's an old line that I think is attributed to Abby Hoffman that I don't want to be part of your revolution if there's no dancing. And the degree – something the Tea Party did really well was it turned what were originally very large protests into local social groups. There were all these different Tea Party patriots and Tea Party Express and people became friends and they dated in those groups and people got married in those groups. And that's how things persist. They become part of your life. They become a social community that you have responsibilities towards and that you enjoy seeing the people from. And so one real question that I just don't know the answer to – is how effective the folks who are organizing these protests are when they are using these Facebook invites and so forth and then building a list and then having people set up like a weekly meetup of friends. Sometimes it's a protest. Maybe sometimes they go clean up trash at the river. And I think that that stuff, though, has a lot to do with the, the, the degree of resiliency in these kinds of groups. I, I also think a challenge for like left protest groups is that the progressive coalition is more demographically diverse, right? And so like as you were saying, some of it is like what does this seem like something that somebody like me would do? Like I know my my father and and his girlfriend were in California and they like – they went to a protest because they saw how big – the protests were on the East Coast, you know, and it was like a signal and it, it, and it was correct. Like people like them were the people who were going to the protests. At the same time, I don't think not – that, not that these were all white protests by any means, but like these were not Black Lives Matter protests and they were not the immigration protests from 2007, right? Those are discrete demographic social communities that – also, Democratic Party politicians like count on for their votes and that are capable of mounting large-scale protests when they want to. But they seem to be existing in somewhat parallel type universes. The Republican Party's uh, electoral coalition is much more homogenous. And so it's easier for like one kind of movement for one kind of people to sort of gain a ton of power and traction and things like that. Um, And I think, you know, it'll be interesting to see because there will be things that come up that mobilize more African-American Latino communities um, than we've seen so far. And it'll be interesting to see, you know, how leaders in these different groups are able to sort of build ties and bridge those kinds of gaps. Because I, I do think that you will see that, like, Activism is a little bit habit forming and that, you know, people will keep doing it and they'll keep doing it and they'll keep doing it. But it is also true that, you know, you need bigger numbers than that to like win elections and to and to really do things. And, you know, we saw in the uh, 
20, in the 2016 election, right, which obviously went generally poorly for Democrats, like the big exceptions to that was in Nevada and to ex an extent in the, the sheriff's race in Maricopa County where, where Joe Arpaio was finally defeated. And in both those cases, it was like painstaking organizing in the Latino community in southwestern states looked like the sort of great hope um, that, that was getting someplace. And that is now like disconnected from the anti-Trump protests that we've been seeing so far. Uh, those were not like the big women's march cities. And, you know, I think to be really effective, people are going to have to sort of go beyond people who are just like them. One thing that this movement does have on its side is a lot of um, unemployed former employees of the Hillary Clinton campaign who are very unexpectedly without jobs. And I think that might actually end up mattering a significant amount. Like this project I mentioned earlier, um, the town hall project, which is basically this Google Doc um, of uh, town halls across the country that's being curated by about 100 or at least last week, it was about 100 volunteers calling Congress, getting information on what meetings they're having, adding it to the spreadsheet. It's um, it's all being run by a former um, Clinton organizer from Ohio who was looking for something like this, couldn't find it and decided like, well, maybe I'll post it. And it's basically become as of last week, his full-time job where he was spending two or three hours on it a day and then kind of blew up a little bit and has been pulling these like 16-hour days to keep it updated. So there is that group of people who I think were, um, were not making plans for post-election who very much expected to have jobs in some sort of level related to a Democratic administration. And I think that could end up mattering a decent amount, that people who really wanted Clinton to win, who worked on her win – are people who are also looking for jobs right now. I'd like to go back to something we were talking about a little bit earlier that, that is a little bit off the question of how the protests evolve, which is the sort of, sort of strategic decision of Democrats negotiating and working with the Trump administration. And something that is striking about that is that it also is very dependent on the decisions Trump himself makes. If he had, after the election, tried to strike a more unifying tone and, you know, reached out to more people and, and really sought to get his approval rating to that 55, 57, 61 percent territory that I think was very possible for him just with a different sequencing and a different political messaging operation. I think there'd be a tremendous amount of pressure, even all thing, even all else being equal. But what's happening right now is Trump's numbers are getting so bad. I think in the latest Gallup poll, he's at 54 percent disapproval. And it took George W. Bush years and years to hit 50 percent disapproval. Trump did it in days after being elected. And uh, Jeff Stein, one of our colleagues, had an interview with a member of the House, Jim Himes, who is one of – I think he's the head of the New Democrat Coalition, if I'm not misremembering this. But, but one way or another, he's one of the sort of key New Democrat, modern Democrat kind of players. And the, the exact kind of legislator that Trump would be looking for to work with him on, on infrastructure. And in this interview, Himes basically says to Jeff, look – I wanted to be working with Donald Trump. We were very excited about this. We wanted to do infrastructure. We were not part of the faction of the Democratic Party that said you can't work with this guy. But Trump is making himself too toxic for us to work with him. That if you if you do all these things on you know Muslim bans and refugee bans and have this kind of political communication and are threatening to take away uh, you know the the legality or the sort of space that has been offered to dreamers. 
that it doesn't matter how moderate your infrastructure bill is. It becomes just impossible for us to work with you at all. And, and I do think it's worth noting that Donald Trump, whether he realizes it or not, is making a very strategic choice here where he is operating in a Steve Bannon, Breitbart-esque way that is making it just completely out of political boundaries for Democrats to, to work with him and in some cases maybe even for Republicans to work with him because his approval ratings are getting very, very low. The stuff he's doing is very polarizing and also – and this is not to be underplayed. He is continuously picking unneeded fights with Democratic legislators who are – sort of interpersonally influential with our colleagues. John Lewis was a big part of this. Fighting with John Lewis makes a lot of other Democrats not want to work with you. But, you know, there was a theory that Donald Trump would be on the phone with Chuck Schumer every day. They're both New Yorkers. They're both dealmakers. You know, Donald Trump had contributed to a bunch of Chuck Schumer's campaigns. Instead, he's really not talking to Schumer at all and is going out of his way to, to make fun of him for, you know, tearing up on television. And so in every sort of space, it's not just that Democrats may not want to work with Trump, but Trump is not acting like somebody who wants to have Democrats working with him. And whether or not he even realizes he's doing this, he's making it politically impossible to get support he's probably later going to need. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of this for Trump, right, is that in a sense, Trump's biggest vulnerability is from inside the Republican Party. I mean, your piece on on how to how to fight an autocracy, you know, it sort of it makes the point that congressional Republicans are basically covering for Trump on a whole range of sort of corruption and conflict of interest uh, issues, and they're not doing it for any like good reason. You can't, you know, you dig through the Federalist Papers or something. You you, you can't find anything in there that's like, well, when an unqualified, untransparent person with no fixed ideological principles takes office, discards tradition, and sets up a bunch of corrupt-seeming situations, really Congress shouldn't, shouldn't pay any attention to that, right? So they're trying to get something and it's a, it's it's a weird power dynamic where you know on the one hand you can say well Trump is super popular with the Republican base um, Trump's ideas are in some ways more popular than the Republican establishment's ideas but then on the other hand it's like the Republican establishment could do these hearings and could force Donald Trump to to clean up his act and could expose uh, deals that are going on and Trump couldn't do anything to stop them I feel like in a practical day-to-day -day sense to the extent that Trump is focused on anything in terms of managing his relationships with Capitol Hill, it's like keeping that on track, right? He he had Jason Chaffetz in for a, a long meeting, uh, we, we had reported, uh, who's the head of the, the House Oversight Committee. Um, you know, he did not have uh, like the top Democrats on the Transportation Committee in for a meeting to talk about an infrastructure bill because he had to talk to the Republican on the Oversight Committee about like not doing oversight. Right. So in a in a narrow sense, like I do think that this makes sense and being besieged by liberal protesters. Well, I don't agree exactly with David Frum's take that like the protest movement has to become more milk toast. It is true that having left wing activists constantly assail Trump helps Trump convince Republicans that their job is to defend Donald Trump rather than to like take a look around at the sort of objective situation and where their their real responsibilities are. So I, I think that's one reason. I think this dynamic that we've seen is, is going to lock in, that we're going to keep seeing protests. We're going to keep seeing Trump not do anything to demobilize people, that Trump is more worried about losing Republicans on the Hill than he is about 
anything else that's happening in public opinion. And protest leaders, you know, would like to keep up this fighting with Trump and, and that everyone's going to get what they want in effect. I want to just make one public opinion note because I just saw this number yesterday and I thought it was really striking and just wanted to add into the conversation. This comes from SurveyMonkey, which is a, a very good online pollster and it's from Mark Blumenthal who used to run the Huffington Post pollster site, which is a, a great site. So here's a number that, that really struck me. Trump's approval rating is low. It is bad. Um, it's historically bad for a new president. But only 9 percent of Republicans disapprove of the job he's doing. Only 9 percent. Uh, it is – I need to do fast math here. Uh, it is 91 percent who approve of the job he's doing. I guess that math wasn't actually that hard come to think of it. <laughs> you did it. <laughs> but I did it. There it is. So that I just think is something really, really striking. It is the case that Trump is extremely unpopular, not just among Democrats, but among independents. Um, 54, 55 percent, I'm sorry, of independents disapprove of the job Trump is doing. But it's both important in the in understanding the incentives of Republican legislators who are always worried about primary challenges and of Trump himself, that it's very early to be sacrificing Democratic and independent support in a presidency. But to the extent they've already made that decision, they are looking at their own base and their own base is pro-Trump and probably does not want an internal fight. So there, you know, to, to your point, Matt, there is a kind of defensive strategic logic to this, but it is a logic that speaks to them being in a very bad position. Like you do not want to be having to play that defensive of a game this early. And obviously some of this, I do think it's worth saying, hanging over everything Republicans do in terms of their political strategy is that if Trump had had an early two-point lead in the polls over Hillary Clinton and then it had bounced up and down from like sometimes tied to sometimes he's up four and then a lot of people had said like fundamentals say you would expect the Republican to win by about two and then on the day before election day, polls said he was up by two and then he won by two, everyone would be like, okay. That's that's what it was. And then if his numbers were falling, they would be worried, I think. But instead what happened was there were like a bajillion smart takes about how hopelessly terrible Donald Trump was doing. And then he won the election anyway. And it has everyone – Although still being down by two. Right. <laughs> uh, but I mean I, I think it th has everybody thrown for a loop, right? And so like suddenly things that you would say would be bad are not – producing the level of worry that they would, right? Like Trump was out on Twitter the other day saying like any bad polls for me are fake polls or fake news. I don't know if Trump believes that. I'm sure Republicans on the Hill don't believe that. But it captures a certain spirit, right? A like fuck the polls, like we're going to do this that I do think, you know, people believe in because like he just won even though everybody thought he was going to lose. And that's the kind of experience that, you know, breeds um, recklessness. OK, so last night. The uh, United States Senate was pulling an, an all-night session to debate the nomination of, of Jeff Sessions to serve as attorney general. I don't know exactly what the arcana of Senate procedure are that leads to this all-nighter being Rule a Oh, sorry. I was getting ahead do. of you. But this is some kind of delaying tactic. Democrats can't filibuster – but they can make everyone sit around for a day and a half talking about this, um, which I think is what people sometimes think filibustering is, but it's different. So in the course of this, 
Elizabeth Warren says she wants to read a letter that Coretta Scott King submitted to the Senate way back in 1986 when Sessions was nominated for a federal judgeship, uh, which he didn't get because at the time it was felt that he was too racist to be a, a federal judge. So she starts reading it. And Mitch McConnell invokes Rule 19 of the Senate, which bans a senator from impugning the motives of another senator. And so Sessions, while he wasn't a senator in 1986, is a senator now. So things that are already in the congressional record from 30 years ago are now considered impugning. So there was like a fracas about this. Um, they had to hold a vote on the floor. Uh, Republicans, I mean, everybody voted on party lines except for Bernie Sanders and Ted Cruz, who were separately hosting a healthcare debate on CNN. And she was she was made to stop talking, which was which was odd. And Mitch McConnell said, you know, she was warned, but still she persisted, uh, which then became like a viral. Uh, tweet in in her favor. Um, hashtag she persisted. Hashtag she persisted. Yes, hashtag she persisted. Um, Old man. It wasn't a, a viral tweet. <laughs> Whatever. Um, <laughs> th- there's a phenomenon called the Streisand effect, which I don't actually know what its origins are, but I assume it has something to do with Barbara Streisand. I can explain this. Um, oh. You want to hear the origins? Yes. So Barbara Streisand sued over, as I understand this, I read about this recently. She sued over a I think it was somebody taking pictures of her house, but it was some kind of like story in a newspaper. And she tried to sue over the story, which in turn, like nobody knew this had happened. Nobody had read this paper or like read the story or seen the pictures or whatever it is. But it then became a huge international news story. So the very thing she was trying to suppress became common knowledge. Everybody saw it and she made the thing she didn't want to have happen was, much, um, much more According public. to Wikipedia, it was over 2003 um, photographs of her house in there Melbourne, California. Right. So this is that. Like this morning. I'm like I, Wikipedia, but less clear. <laughs> <laughs> this morning on CNN, like I saw they were doing a segment about like what Elizabeth Warren was saying and how it violated Rule 19 and how Coretta Scott King had written this letter and how in 1986, Jeff Sessions was considered too racist to be a federal judge. And there's just no way that that story would have gotten done. Instead, it would have been a much hazier, like, Democrats and Republicans disagree about a thing. Um, well, I think one thing that layered on this was then Senator Jeff Merkley was allowed to read parts of the letter that um, didn't directly criticize Sessions, which was also just like another bad look amplifying this, that, you know, you had this man who was allowed to speak, this woman who wasn't. That was all technically within the bounds of this Rule 19, as I understand it. But, like, again, was just, like, amplifying this okay, but I wanna, more and more. I want to not pretend that any of this is on the level for a minute. This is stupid. <laughs> this is extremely stupid. So, number one, and this is a point that um, Senator Chris Murphy ma- made, but he's correct. One of the tricky things about nominating senators to cabinet positions is then when their nominations are being considered, you have to actually be able to criticize them because – That is the job of assessing a cabinet nomination. If you disagree with the person, if you think they're a bad fit, you have to say so and explain why you're voting against them and try to persuade your fellow senators. So typically you don't see this rule invoked in these ways. And also this rule is basically never invoked and almost never in this way. Like Ted Cruz at one point called Mitch McConnell a liar on the floor of the Senate. There was like a whole thing. Someone called Harry Reid a cancer. Yeh. I mean there's (laughs) – the Senate is actually not that nice a place a lot of the time. What is going on – It doesn't involve impugning of motives. Right. Well, I don't know about that. But what is going on here – and I'm not sure this Credit Scott King thing had a lot of impugning of motive. I mean you – it depends on how you – 
think of any of this stuff, right? Like constantly, constantly the ideological arguments the two sides throw at each other are deeply impugning other – like do you ever hear Bernie Sanders explain why a Republican wants to do anything? It is an impugning of motive. And <laughs> if you ever hear, and billionaires. <laughs> and if you ever hear Ted Cruz explain why a Democrat wants to do anything, it is an impugning of motive. Like I, I have heard these guys speak. What is happening here, which I do think is interesting, and I don't know that I want to take us fully in this direction, but Republicans in the Senate really hate Elizabeth Warren specifically. Like she she is not there to make friends, as the saying goes, and is also very self-consciously rising up as a sort of leader of intense Trump opposition, both I think broadly in the country and, and in the Senate. And so they are – like she has managed very effectively and she's I think good at this, has managed to provoke them into a very unwise overreaction, which has made her more of a progressive hero and, and, and hurt probably the, the Jeff Sessions cause even though he did, he did get confirmed. Um, but, but this Rule 19 thing, I just don't want people to go away thinking like, oh, yeah, well, I guess you can't – you can totally do that. This is not how the Senate works. And in a way, when I put this in kind of the context of um, the overall cabinet – fight we've been having, which I think we also want to discuss, is it feels like a lot of these winning moments for Democrats, even though they do not seem to be successful in stopping people. Um, Betsy DeVos was confirmed on a with a tie-breaking vote from Vice President Mike Pence yesterday. They were unable to stop that. But they, you know, got two legislators to flip. They really got people, like, engaged in learning how to call their legislator's office. And it seems like, again, and it, like it, these strike me as, like, two examples, like Ezra was saying, of just kind of unforced errors that are, are really good for liberals in terms of like riling up their members of getting them engaged that that didn't have to happen. You could have found someone more qualified than DeVos. You could have just let Senator Warren read the letter. But but in like both these cases, they're errors that like don't seem like they have to happen, but they seem to do a decent amount, like as it really relates to our last segment, do a decent amount to like keep people interested and outraged at what is happening. Yeah. And it is worth, I think, drawing the contrast between like when Trump picked John Kelly, who's a general Mm -hmm. former head of U.S. Southern Command, which is responsible for Latin America to run the Department of Homeland Security. Some Democrats voted against him for one reason or another to make a point and, you know, keep their scorecard up. But he was just confirmed like right away. Um, And, you know, even somebody like um, Ben Carson, who came and did the meetings with senators and like did the little offers of assurances that you normally do in these things, he got confirmed too. And got Elizabeth Warren's vote. Yeah. I mean, he he got Elizabeth Warren's vote. He got Sherrod Brown's vote. Um, and, you know, there were some complaints, particularly about the Carson one, because he doesn't seem that uh, that well qualified. Um, politics has changed a lot. There is a lot more polarization than there used to be. People are completely right about that. It's not the old days. It is also true that it's not like the old rule book is like completely out of the galaxy, right? Like Trump has on occasion decided to pick people who are either highly confirmable like Kelly or else who like Carson want to do the work to get themselves confirmed. And like it works, right? Jeff Sessions did not in the course of any of this say like, you know what? It was wrong of me to say that immigrants from the Dominican Republic have no skills to contribute to America. 
I was trying to make a point about the skill mix of forward-looking immigration, but like that was offensive. I know that there are hundreds of thousands of Dominican Americans in the United States who find that offensive. I understand why that's offensive. Like I read it back to me and like I get it. You know, like I am sorry that I said that. We are going to keep having a disagreement about how visas should work, but I shouldn't have said that. He didn't do that. Like, he didn't apologize for anything. And instead, I think part of how you got this is if you saw his hearing, a bunch of other old white Republican guys from the South asked him questions like, doesn't it make you sad that people here are kind of drawl and they think, oh, you're a racist? And he was like, yeah, it does make me sad. And they had like a nice, like old, rich, white, Southern guy pity party for themselves, which is great. I mean, like he's got the votes, he's getting in. But if you're sitting there and like your wife is Dominican and people are like, hey, this guy just said no Dominican people have any skills to offer. I heard that Coretta Scott King said, we can't make this guy a judge because he's a racist. Um, his, you know, he's named for Confederate generals. He said he disliked the KKK only when he found out that they smoked marijuana. You know, like it's there's like a lot of stuff out there. And they did not try to make this go down easy. And that's why it's not going down easy. The biggest gift the Democrats could have given the Trump administration would have been to somehow be able to defeat DeVos and Sessions. It would have made the Trump administration much better off. Both of them are lightning rods. DeVos appears to me to be extremely, extremely unqualified for her job, does not really know what's going on, could potentially create some real disaster. Sessions is an incredibly controversial figure. And this goes back to a point you made. Tom Price in this regard. Has he been confirmed yet? Yes. No, I think he will this week. But he has so flown under the radar with like his massive conflicts of interest. But let's see see what happens later this week, right? Like who fucking knows? It's a day by day. Things really change. But yeah, so we'll, we'll see where price goes. Um, but I do just want to – this goes to a point Matt had made when we were talking about Democrats getting rid of the filibuster on, on cabinet nominees in 2013. And you argued this was actually sort of good for them because – and I don't remember if this is exactly how you put it. But, but one thing that's happening is that I don't think Republicans really wish these were the nominees. I have heard stories about how Republicans feel about DeVos and, and actually also about Sessions. And th- these are not super popular figures in, in the Republican Party. These, these are not who Republicans thought President Marco Rubio was going to nominate to these agencies. And these are not folks Republicans want to have hanging on their heads in 2018 when they, when they run for re-election or when they try to pick up Democratic seats. If the filibuster was still around, John Kelly would have gotten through. Jim Mattis would have gotten through. And the Trump administration's initial bad ideas to pay back Jeff Sessions for his support of the presidential campaign and to give DeVos the seat because nobody else appeared to want it, they would have had to stop and like find some folks who are more qualified but probably had very similar ideas to take over these positions, folks who would have been much harder for Democrats to organize against. But it didn't work like that. Democrats don't have the filibuster. They weren't able to stop these nominations. So what they instead did was severely wound the people going into the um, positions and now they have an organizing issue. Whereas Republicans who probably also wanted these nominations stopped, just didn't want their fingerprints on it, are now sitting here defending Jeff Sessions, a guy who many of them do not really like, who many of them really disagree with on immigration and and on at least certain civil rights issues, and are sitting here – watching Elizabeth Warren go viral reading a Coretta Scott King letter against their new attorney general. It's a total disaster. And it, and it is a way in which I think 
the absence of a filibuster to muddy accountability here is at least at this moment working in the Democrats' favor, if not in the country's favor. I mean, the DeVos thing, I think, is the clearest example of that because, like, the biggest thing with her, she has a pretty normal Republican education views, but but she's all the way to one side of them. But she was also just revealed in her hearings, she's not good at talking about education policy in a somewhat contentious forum. And that's just, like, something you want your education secretary. It's not like... America needs an education secretary who's good at – like Donald Trump specifically needs an education secretary who can like do events around the country where she's like Donald Trump's education policy is good and then someone asks her a hostile question and she answers it well. That's like – that's just like your job, right? And to say – I've seen some discussion of this. It's like, ah, Trump's running the table and his cabinet nominees. But it's it's not a win for Trump to force through an education secretary who's bad at verbally parrying questions from Al Franken because she's going to have to testify again. Al Franken's still going to be there, you know, and just to be like, well, okay, we're just going to never – have a spokesperson like that's not good and you see it with the white house staff right like when sean spicer does a bad job people aren't like well this shows how effective trump is like he's got a press secretary up there even though he's bad at his job like no like it's bad right like you want people who are good and tom price the same thing like i guess it's impressive that they're going to get this guy confirmed even though he might end up going to jail (laughs) (laughs) but he might end up going to jail sarah would you would you just lay out the tom price situation Yeah, so the Tom Price situation is essentially since his nomination, there are a number of news outlets and, you know, some really respected ones, Wall Street Journal, ProPublica, that have shown a number of incidents that really strongly suggest that he was using his position of power in Congress to profit off of different healthcare decisions. So I think you, you see a few examples where there was some kind of rule where there's some kind of rule coming out that either would have hurt, uh, you know, a particular kind of device maker, um, and he was someone who would lobby against that and then receive a campaign donation. So write a letter saying, like, we should not have this regulation that would and it would not say, like, adversely affects company X. Um, and so there's a lot of separate ones at this point. It doesn't seem to be like one instance. Um, Price has repeatedly defended himself saying, you know, he had no special dealings with these companies. I think it's a pretty weak defense, but it does not seem to have delayed his um nomination in any but but there's also way. the trading issue there's also the trading issue which seems to me the other one is yeah. like corruption i think that people sort of think is always happening in washington the trading issue seems really bad yeah so i think matt has looked at the well, trading so he's issue been, more than so, I have. so there's two different things like one is he's been like buying and selling right. healthcare stocks while doing things that influence the price can i just say one thing really quickly vox does not allow people like like just like literal individual writers <laughs> To own individual stocks of companies that they cover. Like that is a normal thing in journalism. That is yes. a normal ethics rule. It's how it was at the Washington Post. It, it happens a lot. This guy is a legislator. That's just context. Who for, works well, on health care issues. Who healthcare. focuses on health care issues. And I, and I would also say, right, if you ask any academic, blah, 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 should you buy and sell individual stocks? Is that good for you? Is that a good way to make money? They will say no. No, it isn't. The one reason it might be a good idea to buy and sell individual stocks is because you are illegally profiting from insider information, right? So for members of Congress to just abjure the opportunity to do this is no sacrifice to themselves. Right. There, there are real things where it's like to avoid the appearance of impropriety, you might need to make a sacrifice. But like the only way you can reliably make money 
picking stocks like this is if you are using your political power in an unethical way. Um, there's considerable evidence that members of Congress do this. Uh, there's a couple good papers on it. Members of Congress get uh, super normal returns. But there was recently, uh, a few years ago, a law passed, the Stock Act, that was supposed to like tighten the screws on legislators doing this. Price... Uh, I can't say that he violated it. You would need to do more of an investigation. But like they they should do an investigation and like they might. What does it is, look like happened? I mean it looks like he would buy stock in a company and then go do a dear colleague letter to advance the company's interests. Um, then there's also the – in some ways even more shocking thing of this. But like his buddy Chris Collins who's another House member – um, his family were major like early investors in some Australian like biotech startup and they like cut price in on some early investor offer so he could buy a bunch of discounted shares in it and then like shepherd through legislation that was good for this class of company. So Price got asked about this investment in his hearing and he said that like there was no special deal, that it was just open to anybody and, you know, there was nothing. And then the Wall Street Journal came out with a story a couple of weeks later that was like, no, it was only available to five people. So Democrats on the committee said, OK, like he's got to come back and testify again uh, because lying to Congress is a crime. And you can't say based on that that he lied to Congress or not. I mean, who knows? You know, people can be confused about these things. But I would say as a courtesy to Tom Price, they offered him the opportunity to come back and clarify what was going on here. Uh, Republicans on the Finance Committee uh, refused to do a new hearing. Um, Democrats did a little walkout to protest it. So they changed the rules like it advances nomination uh, without any Democrats. And this is the kind of question where it's like I really think Republicans ought to step back. And it's like for what purpose are they doing this? Like I get they like Tom Price. They agree with him on health care policy. There are hundreds of Republican members of Congress, right? It's not like hard to find no, but I think somebody who I, – I, so I disagree here. I think like Tom Price is someone who like really understands how to repeal Obamacare. He is the only guy who has like actually written out in legislative language what he wants to do. So I think there like is a reason why – one might be so committed to this particular person. I, I agree. Like, I think this is like real sketchy stuff. And like, I would move on to someone else. I do see the reason like why they are particularly but I committed I it's sketchy. to like, Some people are like, oh, because I've seen people doing like a scorecard mentality. It's like, aha, Obama had to withdraw Tom Daschle over a tax thing. But Trump with his like prowess is like getting Tom Price through. But, and like, lack of con- lack of filibuster, right. by like, the way. But like, here. but like, that's confused. Like, Obama wanted Tom Daschle to be his HHS secretary. But then when it turned out that there was these like bad stories about Tom Daschle and lobbying, they didn't want him to be HHS secretary anymore. It wasn't like there was nothing that could have been done to try to force the Senate to install him. But because it's bad, the job of the administration is to support the president and the party and to make them all look better. Like this is a situation where I I guess they're going to get away with it. But like Tom Price is this close to like Republicans lose the House in 2018. There's going to be a bajillion hearings about this, right? Who knows? Someday maybe he's going to be in New York. Maybe Attorney General Schneiderman is going to get cute and have him arrested. Like, who, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, it's you don't want people – maybe Donald Trump wants people who will facilitate and, Donald Trump being corrupt, but he doesn't want and, corrupt. And I would go figures. further. Like, I, I think – 
I think this is bad on two levels, and it goes to both what Matt and Sarah are saying. So one, everything you do in healthcare is hard. It is hard. Most of it is unpopular. The trade-offs are always very rough. We're actually going to talk about one of them coming up. This is a long episode of The Weeds we're doing. Um, one issue is you just – whenever you make those trade-offs, whenever you do a bill, it is going to look like some industries are benefiting and even some companies are benefiting because they are. I mean they, when you restructure big things, some people are winners and some people are losers. What you want to be able to say is that is the outcome of a fair process. You don't want somebody who's coming in already damaged by a view that the people who are winning – actually, if you look, it connects to the kind of biotech firm that Tom Price had an investment in. That's bad. The other thing – and this goes a little bit – I sort of disagree with your point here, Sarah. Just in this one way, you're, I totally agree. Tom Price knows this stuff much better than most Republicans because he's done more work on it. And I think that's bad for them um, in the sense that Tom Price has a record and it's the wrong kind of record. It is like a, a very unpopular bill that in the interim period between whenever they actually figure out an Obamacare replacement, if they ever do, and now, like the Democrats are just going to be like the Tom Price bill gives Bill Gates and Paris Hilton as much of a tax cut as like the poorest mother in you know rural Arkansas. And there's just a lot in that – in what he's done. It's a, it's a long record to attack. So you simultaneously have a guy who's got a corruption record to attack and some really unpopular bills to attack. And you know they could have just gotten a governor. They could have just gotten somebody who had run – who ran Medicaid for Mike Pence? Somebody. Like Mike Pence likes his Medicaid reforms. That person could well, have took, come but in. They took his main person and made her right under Tom Price, Seema Verma. Right. They just could have, they could have made put, her, put number her number one. Number. Like nobody would have said anything. She's perfect. She's better qualified, frankly, than, than Price or any um, elected politician. And it just – it would have been fine. I just – I do not think they're thinking about this strategically and I don't think it's going well. Should we talk about one of um, Tom Price's ideas yes, on healthcare that he shares with many of his Republican my, colleagues? Oh, yeah. Pull out my notes Smart here. healthcare idea, poor math, <laughs> as I understand it. I'd say mediocre healthcare idea, poor math. Nailed it. <laughs> um, really interesting math, though. It's not it's, interesting. It's, 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 it's I, creative. It's very creative. Sarah's math. right. This math is creative. Okay. <laughs> Let's do it. So. A couple of weeks ago, weeks, months, years, I don't know how long Donald Trump has been president for, forever? Eons. Um, <laughs> eons. So there was an executive order. One of the very first things he did was an extremely vague executive order about kind of loosening regulations and urging uh, agencies to take a very lax view of how to comply with, with Obamacare. It wasn't clear what that would mean or what it would resolve into. But at the Huffington Post, Jonathan Cohn, friend friend of the podcast, reported that the thing they're thinking of doing is – so Obamacare has a provision, a regulation that is quite unpopular both among Republicans and among insurers and, and it's called age rating. And what it basically says is that you can only charge a, a 64-year-old three times what you would charge a 21-year-old. They're, they're limiting how much you can charge older people versus younger people. And this has the effect of making health insurance more expensive for young people and much less expensive for older people. And different Republican plans try to change this in different ways. But what Trump's administration is apparently considering doing is releasing a regulation saying that because of the number 3.49 rounds down to 3, that instead of the regulation being you have to do a 3 to 1 age rating, you can actually do a 3.49 to 1 age rating because of rounding. So 
This Which is, is like, ins- like let, let's be clear, that's like an insane interpretation of the law. Nick Bagley. Also of rounding. It's has, a weird interpretation right. no, that, of rounding. It, that's no. the right, that's how rounding works. I disagree works. that this is how it's rounding works. But, said. you know, I. Well, you could round to 3.5. Right, because it would round, anyways. Uh, you could go out to digits. Well, yeah. We need to get Brad Plumer. Uh, who normally writes about environmental issues but was a math major in college. I have to say, I'm not sure the OMB has declared that the government believes rounding is to the nearest significant digit. <laughs> but it's just like a crazy interpretation of the law. Like Nick Bagley, who has written for us, he's a law professor at Michigan, has said like if, you know, the price tag of something was $3 and you went to the checkout and they said actually it's three they're the same numbers, you'd say no, it's $3. Like it is – it seems very hard to see how this like actually stands up as like a legal interpretation of the law. But it also seems completely plausible that you could like push this through and the legal challenges will take long enough that you could do this. All of this is a way of getting into our white paper or white papers of the week, which are, are about the underlying issue here, which is a serious issue and is a very tough trade offset around around age rating. Uh, I've been reading a bunch of articles about this this week and there are pretty good analyses of this done by Rand, done by the Urban Institute and, and they come to different views. But what I like, the, the Actuarial Society of America or whatever the, the trade group is called – there was a piece that sort of had their numbers in here. And, and it said that based on actuarial models, the three to one rating band increased premiums by between five and 10 percent for people between the ages of 25 and 40. So between five and 10 percent between 25 and 40. But premiums were reduced 15 to 25 percent for people aged 55 to 64. Now, I want to be a little clear here because at age 25 and 26, it's probably a little bit larger than five to 10 percent. 25 to 40 is a large range. But that is Broadly speaking, what you see, you see a moderate but but significant rise in premiums for younger people and a very sharp drop in in premiums for older people. What a lot of Republicans want to do is switch to a, a five to one age rating band. And Rand has looked at this. And again, this would mean that you could charge uh, an older person five times what you could charge a younger person. And so Rand looked at this and said, for a 64-year-old, the annual premium for a typical silver plan, which is sort of the average plan under Obamacare, would grow from 8500 to 10600 So it would be an increase of $2,100. A 24-year-old would see their premiums fall from 2800 to 2100 So it would be a cut of $700. Now, there's a little bit of offsetting work here because if you're able to get more young, healthy people into the pool, you could potentially bring down premiums at least a little bit for everyone. But but most of the people I've talked to don't think that effect would be very big. So you're basically asking the question of, of who is this for and who are you trying to benefit? You can make your system look better and have lower premiums if you basically make health insurance too expensive for a lot of older people to buy it or just make them pay more of their own freight. Whereas you can make health insurance much more accessible to older, sicker people if you uh, are willing to have healthier, younger people bear more of the cost. This is something where it in a very strange way cuts in the opposite way of everybody's political demographics. Democrats are extremely strong among young voters. But they favor a policy that makes healthcare more expensive for young voters. Republicans are extremely dependent on these older voters for their support. But they, their first thing they want to do on Obamacare is make health insurance more expensive for older people. So the politics of this are very strange, and 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 the trade-offs are very difficult. But I'd be curious to hear, Sarah, your your thinking on this. Yeah. So I think you know one of the things you could have a knee-jerk reaction that like Democrats did this and Republicans want to do that, and the republic like you will decide like well this one must be good and this one must be bad. I think, you know, when I've talked to folks who who worked on the law, I think there is some sense like they have questioned like whether they set the right age band. Like I think you run into that in your reporting as well, that this is an issue. I think that if we had a Clinton administration, they would be considering 
similar things. And maybe they would go to like four to one, for example. They might not go all the way 3. to 3.49. 3.4. Maybe they'd go to 3.75. <laughs> Who knows, you know, where they would land. But this is an issue that I, I think has um, challenged the law because, uh, you know, the healthcare law has not gotten to the amount of young people that the White House initially set out to get. I remember we talked to the White House right when the healthcare law was launching, and I think they said they wanted about, I think, like one third of enrollees to be between 26 and um, 34. And right now they're at like a quarter between that amount. So they definitely have not hit their targets. And this would be, you know, I don't think the Democrats feel like they got it fully right. But I think there's also concern going all the way to five to one, which I I believe most actuaries I've talked to think is a more natural distribution where you're essentially like paying to cover your health care costs, not like cross subsidizing in the way you do at three to one. It's not totally clear what, how that market change would, would play out, who would be scared away, who would come in. It's worth saying that on some level, this gets back to the original sin of this exchange system, which is that as the architects would explain to you, it only works if you include a hideously unpopular individual mandate mm-hmm. to purchase health insurance or else be penalized by the government. But then because it was unpopular, they didn't want to make that stick that much. So then you wind up with all these subsidiary conversations. I mean, I, I remember when, when they launched healthcare.gov and I was brought in for a thing with, with David Simis and, and Tara and they were talking about, you know, we're going to sell this. And there was this whole controversy about is Trump going to cancel the television ads? And now we're talking about the age rating, right? And like when we thought about this like just like as a blank sheet of paper and someone starts sketching out how it's going to work, right? It's a three-legged stool and the leg of the stool that does all this work is the individual mandate, right? If every- and the subsidies. Yes, and the subsidies. Right. Well, sorry. Right. We, we have our three legs. <laughs> but, but I mean if the three legs were working, everybody would be buying health insurance because they had to. And then some people might be paying more than they wanted to in some abstract sense, but it would be affordable for everyone because there would be subsidies. And then because everybody was in, there would be a risk spreading and it it would all work. And like it doesn't work. I mean I think this like the Paul Ryan rhetoric like this is failing so we should throw everyone on the street like is kind of crazy. But it is also true that we have now – had years worth of different sort of patchwork efforts. And it's like, maybe we can do better TV campaigns and maybe we can make up the idea that 3.49 is the same as three. But it's like they're trying to make people want to buy health insurance that it was supposed to be people would want to buy because you had to. But as Sarah's written, right, like in Switzerland, which is allegedly the model of how this can work, they, they put you in jail. Yeah, I'm not. So they definitely like garnish your wages. If you don't sign up for insurance in Switzerland, like they are going to make sure you sign up for insurance. They will put you in an automatic plan. They will start garnishing your wages. If you're somehow able to get out of the wage garnishment, like jail time is a possibility. It's a really serious mandate. I will say, though, I don't think it's totally fair to make the sweeping assessment that people don't want to do this. Like I look at I think it's very state based at this point and like the policies in the ACA work when you have a community that is like receptive to implementing them. If you look at California's marketplace, for example, they just put out data this year that um, 37% of their enrollees are young adults, which is a great risk mix. Like mm-hmm. That's like a fantastic pool that you want. I generally agree, like the policies that exist are not working well in the current political climate, but I would not take that to say that's because they are like bad policies that that 
can't work. And I think they do have to be like responsive to the fact a lot of people don't like Obamacare and are not going to work to implement it. But I wouldn't take it as an indictment that like the thing was not set up right. Right, But I mean, I'm saying like it's like the three to one band. They thought that the three to one band would be a regulatory tweak in the context of like a universal Mm -hmm. enrollment scenario in which universal enrollment was going to be driven by mandate plus subsidies. Right. So if you were in that world, you'd be having one conversation, which is about how much cross subsidization Mm -hmm. between young to old do we want? Um, We're now having a kind of different conversation, which is about like how much cross subsidization from young to old can we get a, can we like afford without breaking the system, right? And that's because like this wall that was supposed to make people say, okay, I'm going to get in is not fully effective. And there's way more like carrots and fewer sticks mm-hmm. than the like abstract notion of how this was supposed to work. I think that's probably right. And I think it's actually worth broadening that conversation out. So different ways you could fix this. One is the age rating. And and one thing I do think you kind of take away from these actuarial pieces on this is that it isn't obvious to me the age rating will do as much as people hope it will. The, the, it, it, it sometimes will move prices a lot, but particularly in markets where you don't have a lot of competition, it may not do as much as you hope there. It might drive healthy people out of the older, healthier people out of the pool, in which case it will have – there will be a, a backlash effect on prices. So that's that's bad. You could – turn up the individual mandate. Obviously, nobody's going to do that, but you could do that. That would be a fix. Um, You could increase subsidies, particularly you could even do targeted increases in subsidies for young people would be another option. Um, That's sort of what President Obama uh, suggested in our interview with him. Uh, Obviously, Republicans aren't going to do that. A pretty interesting idea I heard on this recently, I was interviewing Ezekiel Manuel, who was one of the architects of the bill, was working uh, with Peter Orzag on that. And he said that he thought a really bad idea in the bill was actually its most popular policy, which is keeping kids up to age 26 Mm -hmm. on plans because that is a lot of young kids for like 18 to 26. Um, He said the kids who are doing that are the kids whose parents care about whether or not they have health insurance or to make sure they signed up. And that is a lot of very young people you've taken out of the exchange And they have money. Like they are people whose parents have employer-sponsored insurance suggesting they could afford to buy in the marketplace. So everybody loves that. Policy like Democrats, like the first thing Democrats say when a Republican is talking about repeal in place is like, "What are you going to do about the kids up to age 26?" And the first thing Republicans <laughs> say is like, "Nothing. We're going to keep that forever." But that is a policy completely um, working against what everybody wants to have happen here. So th- there are a lot of ways to tweak it. The, the problem really is that you have very little support um, for any of the individual policies because they all have really bad trade offs. And so just like to go through them one by one. If you change the age rating, the trade-off is you're screwing over older people, right? You are making health insurance more expensive for older, sicker people, and you're probably going to drive some healthier old people out of the market. I don't want to keep saying old because 62 isn't old, but you know what I mean, um, older. So that's your trade-off there. You, there's no free lunch. You're driving out um, healthier, older people and uh, making life very hard for older, sicker people who need health insurance. It's an ugly trade-off. Uh, subsidies, the trade-off is you have to spend more money. Uh, I don't think that's the end of the world, but I think Republicans really are not are not happy about doing that. The individual mandate is just in every respect an extremely unpopular policy, so so that's that. Keeping kids on, on insurance up to age 26. Also, that would be taking out the most popular policy in the bill, so that's not a popular change. And all this goes to show, I think, the fundamental problem Republicans keep running into here and everybody has kept running into, which is there are no free lunches on this. There's no easy answers. There are no easy fixes. Healthcare is hard. 
anything you do creates winners and losers. And I think that's even more difficult if you're extremely ideologically opposed to, to government action in, in the system. And the reason Republicans keep not really coming up with plans on this is because there are not really good ideas here. This 3.49 thing, they could do it. And it will, I predict, have virtually no effect on the markets. It is just not big enough to have a serious effect on the but markets. But I won't stand up for people who have good ideas and easy answers <laughs> and, you know, poach some some Chapa Trap House market share here. But, that, like, what what people like is when the, the government taxes rich people and they use the money to give other people free health care. I mean, it's not like, you know— there's no political obstacles to that. But like the Medicaid expansion part of the Affordable Care Act is proving to be, I would say, much more robust and durable and like less plagued by like constant second guessing and like have we created weird administrative vulnerabilities um, than than this exchange system. And, you know, I, I was a believer, you know, I was like there for that like Ron Wyden amendment to like let companies start doing the dumping into the exchanges sooner and like maybe we can have a grand bargain where Republicans stop repealing the Affordable Care Act but we raise the Medicare age limit because uh, because Obamacare is like going to be so great and like this is going to be the healthcare system and we can transition federal employees into it and like nobody is talking about that stuff now like I'm not talking about that stuff Ron Wyden's not talking about that stuff Nobody, certainly nobody is like Zeke Emanuel enjoys being perverse and so is talking about throwing 25-year-olds off their parents' health insurance. But that's like he should talk to his brother about that idea. Like it's ridiculous, right? Like nobody's ever going to do that. I don't think he's saying you could do it now. I think he's saying that that was a mistake yeah, no, they no, no, made right, initially. Right, right. I mean I, I get it. I, I get it. But it's like Republicans' problem is that like this health insurance is still way better than being uninsured and like their basic idea is just pull the rug out from everybody and then you're screwed. But like what has been created, it's not that good compared to other ways that people are getting health insurance in America and I think reforms that people are interested in are mostly about expanding those other kinds of systems that seem hardier and not really about this exchange universe. Yeah. No, I would add, like, when I was in Kentucky, one of the things that surprised me was a lot of the people on the private marketplace were like, screw this, I want Medicaid. Like, it's much more robust at um, very little cost sharing. Um, but I want to go back to one thing you were saying, Ezra, that the, you know, 3.49 thing will have a small effect. I agree, but I also want to like give the Trump administration a little credit here. In the so the context of where they're proposing this is a regulation to kind of shift in some small ways how the marketplaces work in 2018. And I was actually surprised at how much um, this regulation hasn't come out yet. A lot of the details have been reported by John Cohn and the Huffington Post and Dan Diamond and Politico. But it's really essentially a regulation like that's making a plea to insurance companies to stay in the marketplaces in 2018. And I'm think like if it does have the things that it is reported to have, it might be successful on that level. Because some of the other things it's doing, it's shortening the open enrollment period to fewer days. It's really tightening. There's a lot of special enrollment periods. Like if you have a baby or if you move states, it's making it harder to qualify for those um, in a way that I actually think makes sense. Um, up until now, it's required very little documentation. You just had to check a box that said, I move states, which is great if you get sick. You just check the I move states box, and then all of a sudden you have health insurance. So this would require some documentation before you could get coverage. So and these are really the suite of changes that like when I've talked to insurers over the past few years, they've been lobbying. They were lobbying the Obama administration 
for these particular changes. So, you know, I think of the 3.49 thing as as part of this like peace offering to health insurers. And I could have seen before I read about it, it going two ways where you could see Republicans saying the marketplaces are imploding and then the marketplaces implode and they say, look, Obamacare imploded. This suggests that less interest in that path that they think it's in their best interest to like keep the marketplaces stable in 2018. And the way they think they're going to do that is by making the exact changes insurance companies have asked for and making it like a more palatable environment to sell on. So to make just one point on the the piece about Medicaid, because I, I do think it's worth just you could fix this. You could fix it in Medicaid and you could fix it in the exchanges. And I, I think because we do get off on all these discussions about regulations and we get off on them because the main obvious thing you would do is just not on the table, which is, as Matt says, it is popular to tax rich people to give poor people health insurance. But I don't actually think it's a Medicaid versus the exchanges problem. If you doubled subsidies in the exchanges tomorrow, a lot of these problems would disappear immediately. This would just like the insurance would be cheaper. People would be getting better insurance. The premiums they would be paying would be like everybody would be extremely happy with that. The problem is that there just hasn't been political will to do anything like that. And so I think that both sort of the Medicaid option and the exchange option have the same problem. Now, there's like a different question. But Medicaid is cheaper. Yeah. That's why it's they little, made the Medicaid a, expansion so big. It's cheaper. But on the other hand, Republicans are more opposed to it. That's like the thing that you keep running into here. Yeah. I, listen, I think <laughs> like if you could go back in time, what you would do is just given what you know – Put everything into Medicaid up to three hundred percent, Medicare down to fifty five, and you know some expensive other things. Time traveling Emanuel brothers. Time traveling Emanuel <laughs> brothers. Um, but but the you know when when I talk to people about that because I've for a piece Sarah and I are doing, I've been talking to folks about this. They're so like, look, like when we were talking to Ben Nelson and these folks, like that w- that kind of thing was a non-starter. Yes, because they anything that looked like you were just doing single payer by attrition would have had massive insurance industry lobbying against it, massive pharmaceutical lobbying. I mean, Medicaid is cheaper in part because it forces providers to pay lower rates. So I just like, I agree with you on some level, but I think that's another thing where it's like you look at it and then you start walking down the path and it turns out it's actually harder. It's it's another thing that has a lot of difficult trade-offs attached to it. Everything is terrible. <laughs> Except for recommending excellent podcasts to your friends, That's rating true. them That's on good iTunes. Um, There's no you know, trade-offs there. That's just all good. It's, it's a win-win for everybody. Um, it's, it's, it's for us, for you, for your friends, for our sponsors, uh, for our producer, Fim Shapiro, for everybody we're thanking. And we'll, it's also uh, good to listen to the Ezra Klein podcast, where this week I have Kara Swisher on. I'm not. I'm skeptical of that, but, you know. <laughs> The trade-off, because then you can't listen to the weeds as much. Yeah, so. you only put out one weeds a week. Listen to a classic oh. episode. I guess some we put out two last week. Yeah. yeah. All right. We'll, we'll see you next week. <laughs>